I um I say this all the time, but the countdown always makes me so nervous. So my heart's racing now. Uh, but Alex, it's really cool to host you. Actually, I've written about and published some things through the Substack that came of some of the classes that I took with you. Uh, so I have an audience that is probably going to be a little surprised that they get to see and hear from you directly. Uh, so the kind of frame that I would put on this is that, as most people know, I've been studying political science at the University of Colorado much later in my life. And your class was the first class that crossed over like the politics and the technology, the first class I took. Uh, and so I, I got obsessed with a lot of the research you were doing, mainly because like I started building computers and working on wireless networks when I was in middle school. So I like right when broadband was becoming relevant. And then uh, my, my first jobs were like selling computers. I worked at like a number of uh, telecom and uh, network infrastructure companies. I have experience in the data center of implemented software. So uh, there's a lot of people in the political science community, in the def defense community, even these technologists in the Bay Area that talk about like myths and disinformation. And so when I took your class, uh, it was probably the most sophisticated, but also like broad conversation on the way that governments are making use of technology. And just recapping for everyone that will be listening to this at a certain point, uh, Alex, in the class I took with you, it was called authoritarianism in the digital age. And you know, people heard me like uh, ranting or writing about some of these things, but we went all the way from like liberation tech, uh, online censorship, computational propaganda, online uh, uh, repression of political dissent, state-sponsored media. I mean, we, we covered this uh, gamut of uh, kind of uh, surveillance technology, uh, of these repression technologies or of these repressive capabilities that governments are putting in place in the technological era. And a lot of the technologies um, are things that I've seen practically. I, pro I probably should have been an engineer, uh, even though I sell software. Uh, but you know, I've breached big networks and I mean, th this stuff was fascinating. So, uh, Alex, just to kind of frame your background a little bit, and then we'll get into our conversation again. Obviously, you're an assistant professor in the political science department at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And then uh, some other things that you've done. I've watched some of your other content, but uh, this is on your website. So non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institute Center for Middle East Policy and the Artificial Intelligence and Emerging Technology Initiative, as well as a faculty affiliate at Stanford's Immigration Policy Lab, which I think we'll get to talk a little bit more about that today. And then also uh, NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. And then uh, you did your PhD in political science at NYU. I was in New York a lot last year, so I was around the very mm -hmm disarray spread out campus. Uh, but that's very cool. And I'm sure there's a number of other things that you've done. But I think 
where it would be really interesting to start our conversation after my extended introduction is like, how did you get into academia? And, and then how did you even decide on political science? Sure. Well, thanks so much, Chris. It's great to be here. And I think, you know, I loved having you in my class because you brought all of these perspectives that you're describing. And it's just fun to kind of come full circle and get to have this sort of conversation about both the themes that, that we were discussing, but also um, research in this area more generally. So the way I got into this actually, I think is a little bit non-traditional. I was studying Arabic in undergrad, kind of on a whim, wanting to learn a new, very different language. And so I started spending a bunch of time in the Middle East, beginning with college study abroad in Jordan. And then after college, I was living in Egypt around the time of the Arab Spring because I graduated from undergrad in May of 2011 and had applied to this program called the Center for Arabic Study Abroad, where they basically pay you to hang out somewhere in the Middle East for a year and take Arabic classes. And I was originally scheduled to go to Syria, but things had kind of exploded and, and gotten um a bit too unstable in Syria by the spring of 2011, but Egypt, they decided was still okay. So I showed up in Cairo right when everything was kind of unfolding in Tahrir Square. And the thing is just living in an area that was experiencing political unrest in this period, we used to use social media a lot to figure out, you know, what's going on? Where is it reasonable to go? Where is their tear gas? Where is it calm? This kind of thing. And that really exposed me to the ways that people were talking about politics online and got me really excited about learning more about that and doing research in that area, both in terms of how people use it to coordinate mobilization, but then the government response as well. Um, and so I was kind of tracking this stuff qualitatively while I was living in Egypt. And, and after this, got a job at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where I was doing some more sort of policy oriented, more qualitative research. And they suggested that if I wanted to kind of stay in this field, it would be helpful to have a PhD. So I was initially motivated to go to NYU and get my PhD. Um, to do more policy research rather than academia, but I wound up uh, getting sort of sucked into the more academic side of things and, and becoming a professor. That's so fascinating. And I, um, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to witness some of the kind of, I guess, like political environment, uh, like when I think like people underestimate like how disruptive politics can make society, maybe because it doesn't yeah, happen as frequently I mean, in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because on the one hand, um, this was like an extremely optimistic time to be in Egypt. It was, um, you know, I was there through their first elections um, in 2012 and, and people were, were really excited and had all this hope for the future. But then it was also a period where where there was a lot of protests and some state violence in reaction to those protests. And the interesting thing you say, you know, referencing this disruption, it's like when you see this stuff on the news, it looks as though it's going on everywhere, you know, and that 
every street is full of protesters or, or full of police violence or this sort of thing. But in practice, it would be kind of going on in one little area and then people a block away are, are living their lives and, um, you know, doing doing the things they need to do day to day. So I think like that that dichotomy is really interesting to see as well. That's so fascinating. And so so you were you were in Egypt, you were traveling more. And what what was the catalyst, though, that where you decided like Ph.D. in political science? Well, so I knew that I wanted to do um, research that kind of focused on Middle East politics. And that was just because I had gotten really interested in the region through studying the language and spending time there and meeting people. And I didn't know kind of, you know, coming out of college, how do you actually do that? Like what what jobs are out there that might let you spend all of your time reading and studying and talking to people and learning about this stuff. Um, and I saw this opportunity at a think tank in DC to, uh, it was called being a junior fellow, but it basically meant being a research assistant. So I started out doing that, which was much more kind of policy oriented and um, kind of, you know, not about publishing in academic journals or anything like that. But they suggested if you wanted to kind of move beyond being like at the bottom of the totem pole, that a PhD would be a good idea. And I researched it more and learned that it was free and that they actually pay you to get oh, wow. a PhD. So that was like a big motivator as well. That's cool. Uh, and so once you kind of like locked into this path, how did you like like what got you into like the digital stuff or like some of the technology stuff? So, you know, I had become interested in how people were kind of using social media to talk about politics and for political organizing during my time in Egypt around the Arab Spring. But I had only looked at it in a really qualitative way. And when I started my PhD at NYU, they were just beginning this lab, which is now what, what you call the Center for Social Media and Politics that used to be called um, the Social Media and Political Participation Lab. And they were like, we yeah. can teach you to do the big data version of the qualitative stuff you've been doing. And this was in 2014, when this Jeez. was much less of kind of a thing that people were talking about. So I remember thinking, I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds cool and, you know, let's do it. And um, I kind of took the more substantive qualitative background I had and started to tech up and learn, you know, how do you actually collect and analyze large scale data and what can you learn from that? Um, and that yeah. really sort of set me down the, the path of doing the type of research that I'm continuing to do nowadays. Yeah, it's super cool. And I obviously like I was I was in Boulder like in 2014 when Amazon Web Services was like blowing up mm -hmm. and I was at this um this startup that was selling like bare metal servers. So this is how I started to get exposed to like big data conversations. I, I wish I was doing it the way you got exposed because it's more fun. But then you probably had to do like some creative things to capture data right? Like, I mean, to get data off of like Twitter or uh, wherever you would get data from, right? Like, was there a process that you were following at that point? I mean, being that there were not as many practitioners in the space and not as much big data analysis at the time? 
Yeah, so this is where I was really lucky to be doing my PhD at a place that had this lab because they were thinking a lot about how can we collect, you know, we started with Twitter data because it was e the easiest thing to collect, but how can we grab this stuff in real time? How can we, how should we even think about what to collect? Like, does it make sense to collect data based on keywords or hashtags, or should we be trying to, you know, identify specific accounts and grabbing data at the account, at sort of the user level? There were all of these considerations and people were kind of figuring it out as they went along. But basically um, the, the big initial obstacle was just storage because the data becomes so large. And how do you, um, how do you put it in a database that you can actually work with? And that's where being part of this lab that was hiring engineers to kind of sort this out was really helpful. And they, and, you know, people have gotten so much better at doing this over time. I think some of the initial solutions and approaches we had um, were much clunkier than, than how you would do it nowadays. And also just data access has changed over time. Like right now, Twitter has this academic API where anyone with a university email can apply to get access and you can collect, um, I think about 10 million tweets a month is the oh, wow. kind of baseline um, just, and there's all of this open source code for how to collect and analyze this data. That, so there's been so much progress in, in making this stuff accessible, but in the beginning, um, you, you needed sort of more technical skills and infrastructure to just even get started with collecting and analyzing the data. Yeah. I feel like, um, like I'm sure web scraping was big at one point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I, I've, I've seen like Bay Area startups like use web scraping for data collection. Uh, but then also just like, I know this random guy who was selling me this uh, automation software that I actually had to put on servers. And he, he like went to mines and he like, he lives out in Grand Junction and basically just makes this software in his basement. But he wrote like tons of different kind of scripting and put it into a software package. It was so silly. Well, this is well. This is the thing. I mean, it was actually kind of. It continues to be this interesting ethical question of, as as a researcher or an academic, can you even if it's possible to scrape data that's not available through kind of APIs that comply with terms of service? You know, should you do it, and under what circumstances, and and how do we think about it, and then how do we think about protecting the users? whose data we access and, and all of these sorts of questions. And the thing that's hard is you're sort of at the mercy of the tech companies, right? If you want to follow the rules of who do they make data available to and when. So like I said, you know, Twitter has done a lot to make um, data access easier and other platforms are actually following suit. Uh, YouTube and TikTok recently are sort of announced they're in the process of creating these new academic APIs, which is great. That's and insane. then Facebook has had like different, um, different options at different points, but tends to be like a lot more restrictive with the, with the data they make public, especially following Cambridge Analytica when they were when they were under fire. But I also think it's really important, like as a researcher to think about what are you gonna do with the data to protect people whose data you're analyzing, especially for people like me doing, you know, research where I might be collecting data from Saudi dissidents or, or you know, mm -hmm. groups that really need protection and kind of the importance of like 
only showing your data and your results at a more aggregated level so that you're not providing identifying information about people and, and this sort of thing. Yeah, it's super interesting, the whole ethics uh, element, I guess you could say. And then I love how these barrier tech companies like pretend like they care about ethics when in reality, in my opinion, most of their changes in practice uh, come with like huge media scrutiny and crazy events like Cambridge Analytica. Uh, but, but and I've seen some of these data sets. There is actually a market uh, in like geospatial engineering and um a couple other fields that like buy these large pools of location data that comes off of Google, uh, Google Chrome actually. And I guess, you know, there were a lot of changes. And so like, that's the other thing that uh, was tough when I was in your class, because there's always so many thoughts in my mind, but it's like, I'm thinking of like how all these endpoints uh, create data. And then like, I think it would be interesting to hear too, like, there's all these different workloads. People are talking about like machine learning, artificial intelligence and so forth. But how do you think that's like impacting your research or like, how does that come into play? I know it's broad, but you know, how do you look at those buzzwords? Yeah. So I think um, it's a really interesting question because the, the buzzwords have become so big and they mean such different things to different people. And so um, for social scientists and for academics more generally, you know, it's really important for us to make really clear what our models are actually doing and make code available so people can replicate our analyses and understand kind of where the numbers we wind up with come from and how things are getting classified and this sort of thing. And so what you notice a lot is sometimes people sort of out in the world are calling things AI that we would probably really just call simple regression, right? And But other sure. times they are using um, kind of fancier models, neural networks, this kind of thing. So I think um, for us, the big thing is just like, you know, actually defining and operationalizing what we're doing in a really clear and transparent way so that um, science can kind of build on it and, and scholars can understand, okay, they measured this thing this way in 2014, but if we were going to do it now, there's so many um, more advanced approaches to analyzing text data or image data or these sorts of things that you might want to build on or try. So uh, for me, the main thing is just, you know, using new tools, but being really transparent about what they are and what their limitations are as well. Do you think like you're, well, I guess two questions, like one, how do you define like your focus area in political science? And then like, do you think political people that want to step into like PhDs in political science or want to continue on in social sciences, do you think they'll need to become more hard edge or more accustomed to like data analytics and those types of things than maybe 20 years ago or 40 years ago. Yeah. So you're, I mean, you're definitely tapping into something, which is that I, political science in particular as a discipline has really transitioned um, from uh, sort of initially being much more qualitative to becoming increasingly quantitative. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of debates over whether or not that's a good thing. Like, I actually think that sometimes we lose a lot from the fact that it's much harder to publish, say, like qualitative or ethnographic work in political science journals these days than it is to publish quantitative, especially like causally identified type of work. Because when we're talking about something like online politics or the way people are, are using these tools or governments are responding, there's so much that you learn from really sort of in-depth studies of, of interviewing people and just looking at, at um, tweets or posts or, or whatever and, and videos and understanding, you know, what people are doing um, in a more ethnographic, qualitative way. And we actually need a lot of that kind of research to get to the stage, I think, of doing the more large-scale quantitative work. Um, but yeah, the, the discipline has kind of gone in this direction where quantitative analysis is prioritized and especially at the PhD level, uh, the first kind of two years of most poli-sci PhD programs, a lot of what you're taking are basically statistics and, and data analysis type of classes. And I think that comes as a surprise to a lot of people. I know it did for me, especially coming in with a qualitative background. I was like, wait, I want to be studying Middle East politics, but all I'm doing is running regressions. And I, you know, I, I now, you know, hugely see the value in kind of having the time to learn the quantitative skills to work with the types of data I was interested in. But I think it can be um, kind of like a, a weird journey for people who come in with certain substantive issues and have to, or interests, I mean, and have to kind of first tech up and learn skills to be able to kind of get to the point of doing the research. Yeah, it's so fascinating. And I used to, you know, I had like a weird academic background. Uh, and, you know, obviously, I didn't go to university until last year. But, uh, but I was around like a lot of the big data analytic systems. And I was selling a lot of these technologies, too. But I feel like the quantitative hard edge stuff makes you describe things with more precision. I don't know how to explain this kind of transition of like getting some of the more hard edge stuff, but then being able to kind of visualize something, but then maybe even be able to put like a, a story on the visualization. I don't know if you had like, if you have an experience that you could describe like going from, I don't know, less quantitative to more quantitative or if that changed the way that you started to observe different dynamics in your studies? Yeah, well, I think one one way to think about it, like if we're talking especially about um, looking at sort of online politics or online behavior is you can find evidence of literally any type of online behavior online, right? Like if you want to find a person from a certain demographic background who is expressing a particular political attitude, including like really fringe political attitudes, you're going to find it because there's so many users and there's so much data and social media is kind of optimized for search, right? In this way that lets you find and identify whatever you're interested in exploring. But then there's a question of, okay, we see a few examples of this. What is this representative of? How common is this? Is it new? Has it changed over time? Is it continuing to change into the future? And that's where being able to zoom out and like collect large scale data and look at patterns over long time horizons becomes really important because it gives you context 
for the more sort of individual level, small scale behaviors you might see online. And I think sometimes without having like baselines to compare things to or these um, sort of larger scale analyses, it's hard to draw conclusions from the individual examples that you might observe. And it doesn't mean that those examples aren't important because often they're the starting point for observing like a much bigger, important phenomenon. But you you can't always tell um, much about what the dynamics mean, I think, without sort of zooming out and, and bringing in that larger scale data. It's super fascinating. And I, I watched, you hosted a conversation or somebody hosted a conversation with you through the immigration policy lab in like March or April of this year. And uh, maybe we can talk about this a little bit, but uh, I'm not sure if it's you or your team built some type of analytics platform that was able to measure certain sentiment or like domestic political expression through, uh, of Congress people using Twitter. I don't remember the exact thing. It was really cool. Maybe you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So before I uh, became a professor at CU Boulder, I was doing a postdoc at Stanford in the Immigration Policy Lab. And they are um, a group of academics that really values evidence-based policy and using lots of different types of data sources to understand um kind of the politics of immigration and also migrant experiences. Um, and and they their work is global, but uh, they some of their work is kind of focused on U.S. domestic politics. And one of the things that I worked on when I was there was building this um, interactive tool, which we called the Congressional Tweet Tracker, which was basically mapping the immigration debate in the U.S. in real time using tweets from members of Congress. And so uh, basically every time a member of Congress tweets, their tweet winds up in our kind of real time collection of data and then is classified according to whether it's about immigration or not. And then if it's about immigration, um, whether it's expressing kind of a broadly pro-immigrant stance or anti-immigrant stance. And so by doing that and kind of having this dashboard that lets you look at these dynamics over time and by state and kind of split up sliced and diced in whatever way you're interested in, you can get an understanding of how the debate is changing in response to new events. Um, and the hope is that uh, the tool is useful for, first of all, just kind of regular people who are interested in this, but also for journalists who are trying to understand um, these shifting dynamics in particular in response to current events that are relevant to migration. Yeah, it's so interesting like that there are certain activities that take place on Twitter that have like high correlation with uh, other environments. Like some people have this like separation between like the digital world and reality. I actually don't think they're separated. I, I think that the digital world just allows us to see certain things more clearly, but uh, it is cool that Twitter is like this powerful uh, tool. Even um, Even like people go to Twitter or are scraping Twitter for like, market analysis or financial analysis, corporate analysis. So it's very cool to hear about the kind of political, uh, uh, what, practical applications, I guess. 
Yeah, no, uh, I, I think you're, I think you're right. And I mean, just on this note, one thing that I've noticed kind of being, because I sort of started in this space in 2014, when there were fewer people, both in academia, but also just like in the private sector doing um, these kinds of analyses is that for example, it used to be really cheap to create training data, like to hire people, whether in the US or all over the world to code tweets or Facebook posts or, or whatever, for you to be able to train your machine learning classifiers. But once everyone became interested in having training data for all sorts of profitable applications, all of these platforms that used to allow academics to get this data really cheaply, like kept raising and raising their prices and in some cases, you know, priced us out, right? But it, it makes sense because so many other industries and, and people, you, using these types of approaches for different reasons kind of recognize the the huge value that these sort of like crowdsourcing, creating training data sorts of platforms we're providing. Well, yeah, and beyond the enterprise use cases, like obviously like political communications and political PR, political psychology, all of those punks uh, are using this data and creating models, mental models and all that. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so... Okay, so now, like, just to kind of transition a little bit, uh, I think earlier you said that you're focused on uh, research this semester, we'll call it. Uh, and so now what what does that entail? I mean, I, I got to read a lot of the research that you shared in the digital authoritarianism class, but like, what are you looking at now? What's interesting to you? What are you thinking about in, in general, you know? Sure. So there's a couple of different um, strands of my research that I am working on right now. One is trying to understand kind of the relationship between repression and dissent in the digital age. And what I'm what I'm interested in and kind of working on a couple of papers with co-authors on right now is thinking about um what are the effects of exile in a environment where exiles who are forced out of their home country have these large online platforms where they can continue to communicate with citizens back home and kind of what does that look like in in different contexts so one project um, that i'm working on right now is looks at these venezuelan exiles and compares their behavior before and after exile to sort of similar actors that remained within Venezuela and kind of document how they adopt these much more hardline um, and kind of interventionist attitudes and, and call for uh, policies that actually a lot of their constituents at home might not even support and kind of watching this sort of radicalization that happens in exile and, and documenting that. Sorry for laughing. I have I have friends that have large followings like like I have a friend who's in the UK has a major following on social media in Iran. Mm -hmm. And we've had like extended conversations about uh, she maybe wouldn't come into your model as an exile, but she is more certainly using her UK passport, her access to media, her access to social media to express political dissent and to make policy recommendations for the United States, the EU against Iran. So the reason I'm laughing is because 
you know, having read some of the stuff that you've published on this, and I'm excited to see more of it. It reminds me of conversations I've had with some of my friends where I'm like, why are you so hardline? And like some of the things you're recommending, they are kind of unreasonable to a degree. So it's interesting that you're looking at like repression, how that affects, well, I guess we could say political dissent, and then specifically like exiles that are in that environment. Is that one way to reference? Yeah, I mean, I think that exiles are just a really, they're always a really interesting group of political actors, right? But I think especially in the digital age where they maintain this sort of different kind of connection to people at home than they might have been able to at another time. And the kind of related project to this is focused on an example from Egypt where this exile who was living in Spain named Mo Ali basically organized a protest campaign from abroad that wound up sparking um, protests within Egypt and the Egyptian president kind of called him out and responded to him. And it was a very interesting dynamic where his initial videos and tweets were amplified by other exiles, but then consumed really widely within Egypt. Um, and just being able to sort of document that process descriptively, I think, is really important because you sort of ha- we have like anecdotal evidence of a lot of these things happening. But being able to um, collect large scale data and sort of understand the timing and the sequence of events, I think, is really valuable. Yeah. And that makes me think and I wish that we, I didn't want this to be stiff, but I wish we could have had like a visual presentation. Maybe we'll play with something in the future. But. This reminds me of like the, I guess we'll call them like, I'm going to call them network maps. But like you would show us these maps of the relationships on Twitter, like for a tweet, like if it went viral, let's say, you'd show us the relationship. And then uh, that would always take my breath away because like one of my idiosyncratic responses, which I'm sure you saw a bunch of them is uh, either just speaking out really loud or saying wow and so i remember seeing those like what you you can say what they're called but i remember seeing them and just being like wow because it still added like it connected some dots for me because i do some things that have to do with messaging and automation even selling software Mm -hmm. what are those maps called yeah so i think what you're talking about are basically visualizations of either retweet networks or friend follower networks, which enable us to kind of visualize how information flows through social media, um, both like at one moment of time in time, but also dynamically over time. And sometimes people call some of those graphs, they call them hairballs, like because they, (laughs) they're so, there's so many dots interconnected by, by so many um, what we call edges, like the um, the lines that connect users, but um, they really do allow you to understand who is influential in amplifying different types of information and and who is exposed. Yeah, those blow my mind. I and I could imagine like this exile that you're uh, researching. I'd imagine that you may have one of those maps for some of these tweets that have gone off yeah led to physical violence yeah no absolutely we can we can map it and and the thing that's really interesting is like first 
you can see, okay, you know, who are the most influential people, the people with the most followers who might have retweeted him. But that also kind of masks this important over time variation, because some of the biggest people that retweeted him didn't do it until after the protests were underway, or practically over, like at the tail end. So being able to understand, like, who's influential in total, but also just like, what was the sequence? And who were the people that mattered for getting the information out in the first place? Um, it's just like one of the one of the types of ways you can use this data well and even just like like reading like um political philosophy like reading some of the anarchists from like the late western anarchists from like the late 1800s 1900s even as thinking about like the emergence of alexandria ocasio cortez like there was a point where political dissent was an activity that took place in the basement of a church or a university somebody's home uh, it's fascinating to me that people can use social media and still create like, I don't know, the same amount of inertia that an institution could create with their messaging, whatever they're tapping into. Do you think like, are we developing any capabilities around like predicting like intense political type events or... Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think, you know, on the um, on the kind of protest side, it's hard because there are still so many offline factors that wind up contributing to whether something moves from online activism to offline activism. So that's a place where there's been some work done, but I think we're not very good at it. Yet um, one place that's that's interesting to look where people are doing work on prediction is around predicting intergroup violence and doing things like monitoring hate speech or extremist rhetoric um, in a large scale way to try to um, to try to understand like what sorts of upticks in um, anti outgroup language are correlated with offline violence and whether you can use that to um, to sort of predict and and monitor um these types of tensions and i think that it's an area where there's still a lot of kind of work to be done but um where the where it seems like maybe there's a bit more promise for the sort of predictive things that you're talking about yeah that's interesting and i always like now after taking your class i can't think of well it's not just your class it's probably a culmination of things but uh like imagine being able to predict like where a swell of physical tension or violence could happen based off of like an understanding of somebody's messaging. Now I just always think about how governments would weaponize that. Right. And and I, that's I mean, the and that's the thing, right? Like in as many exciting ways as there are to use these tools for what I would argue are positive purposes, there <laughs> are like just as many ways to use them for um, for more, you know, repressive purposes or for surveillance or for targeting um, dissidents or one's opponents or this sort of thing. And, and so I think one of the big themes that emerges from the class you're talking about is just like the cat and mouse nature of this, of how different actors figure out how to use these tools to achieve their goals. And in some ways that's always been true historically too, but it's just the timeline of the shifting tactics I think is accelerated, um, you know, with some of these tools we're talking about. 
Yeah, like think of this. Um, my camera is going to change, and uh, I wonder if I can do this right now. Okay, so you see this change, right? Uh huh. Did it zoom in? Yeah. So my, I'll show you what it does, but uh, the camera is detecting my face, so it's, it's got some degree of ability to predict where I'm going, and then it has this like digital element that looks like a cameraman on like one of those stabilization things but you can see how it kind of like rotates mm -hmm. and how it sees my face so we know for sure that this camera has some type of workload i don't know how much of it is in the camera and how much of it is in the software uh, that it comes with but we know for sure that it knows where my face is at i wish that we could unhide it and so like uh the first time i got this camera like a couple of weeks ago all I could think about was like the stuff we talked about on surveillance technology and facial recognition. Yeah. I'm like, and this, this is like just consumer stuff, but I bet the government stuff is better. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think a lot of the, a lot of the same kinds of privacy concerns we have around a lot of consumer goods and technology also apply even to a greater degree when we think about how governments are, are using these tools and and buying and selling them to each other as well, right? Like the sort of transnational nature of uh, repressive technology. Yeah, it's mind boggling. Um, so do you, like, is there a certain, this is an odd question. And again, I don't know everything about your background beyond like, taking classes with you and watching your content, but uh, is there like a certain part of this kind of digital authoritarianism type stuff that uh, you're most concerned about? Or are there other parts of it that, you know, are interesting to you or surprising to you when you kind of uncovered stuff through research or talking to other people? I think one of the things that... Um... One of the things that concerns me the most is sort of how content moderation and uh, sort of decisions made by tech companies and platforms that are like in theory designed to reduce harms can cause greater harm for certain populations. And like in, in my research, I think about this in terms of if we're designing platforms or content moderation that's supposed to work well in the U.S., say, how could it harm dissidents or just everyday citizens in authoritarian contexts where their concerns are, are really different um, in terms of having their privacy be protected and, and this sort of thing. And I think we see a lot of the time sort of tools being rolled out or content moderation policies being rolled out that are really designed with certain populations, you know, in mind that can have really negative repercussions for others. Um, and I think kind of paying more attention to that and, and highlighting that um, is important. I agree. Like if I, if I was at the Chicago Art Institute, which I go to these art museum pretty frequently, and I'm in the pop art section, uh, you know, they may have a photo of a naked woman, right? But if I go down the hallway, they'll have a sequence of Kanye West quotes. Now, you can show the naked woman in the Chicago Art Institute, but you can't use the N-word on the wall, which again is a part of Kanye's lyrics, right? So when I look at 
these two real world anomalous kind of scenarios, I'm like, clearly there is a mechanism in the Art Institute's uh, curation that says that this naked woman's appropriate, but Kanye West, one of the most prolific creators from Chicago, uh, who has distribution around the globe, uh, who sold hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe billions of dollars of music, we can't show his quote with the N-word. Now, I'm not saying that that has to be a part of uh, uh, content moderation, but but uh, culturally, a naked woman is just as relevant as Kanye West's lyrics, right? They show some type of maybe even political expression or social expression. So like when I took your uh, quantitative statistics class and was taking, which was the first quantitative class I ever took and was taking some of the repression stuff. Then I started to think about content moderation and I was like, oh, so like content is moderated with some kind of model. I don't know all the technical stuff. And I'm like, you apply that model. Maybe that model is like uh, central. Maybe it can't be tweaked very much. And I'm like, that's what it would do is it would censor like one of the most prolific artists of modern times. But it would allow, you know, maybe a white man to post a naked woman, you know, and, and I, I don't mean to use, you know, still, this is, a, you know, looking at the art, but I think like a lot of people that aren't either academic or like technologist, they don't really understand like how censorship may affect certain populations unevenly. Again, my description is not uh, maybe uh it's anomalous or it's not it's it, i couldn't substantiate it necessarily uh with a big data set but it does make obvious who can get censored and who might not be censored yeah i don't know if you have no i think your i that. think your point is well taken and i think that the the um, all content moderation or censorship decisions are inherently political, right? So if we decide that any political discourse from Palestinians could be terrorist activity and a platform yeah. makes that designation, then um, you, you know, see speech removed in a certain way. If we decide that dissidents in Saudi Arabia are classified as terrorists because the regime classifies them that way and then their content is removed, right? Like, what does that mean? And who is the arbiter of this sort of thing and who should be, right? Because it's, it's hard. It's like, um, the platforms aren't necessarily positioned to make their decisions. Each government has their own incentives. Um, and there aren't good answers to it, but just being aware of who is being affected by um, kind of platform-wide changes and, and what that means, I think, is really important. Yeah, it it's super cool. I'm glad that you're thinking about that. You have more uh, skills or capabilities around that. My job is to install software into corporations that need me to tie it to some kind of profit. So I'm glad that there's people like you that can actually like try to make these models more gentle or equitable or, you know, 
nicer. And I think, I mean, and I think also there are lots of people that work at various tech companies who are really concerned with these issues too. It's just that everyone has such different incentives for implementing these types of policies. And we often kind of lack the the information or the data to even understand what, what's being implemented and who it's affecting. Yeah. And honestly, um, my perspective is that if somebody is an AI ethicist at uh, Google or YouTube or, you know, one of the social media platforms, then their, I don't know, their research is uh, probably not going to be as beneficial as maybe somebody at some kind of think tank or university. Like I can't like, like Google has uh, plenty of, uh, they have such a rich database. I can't imagine that. And they're, they sell their data to everyone that will buy it, including government. So I can't, I can't, I don't see how much impact maybe an AI ethicist at uh, Google could have. Uh, but, uh, but maybe it kind of, you know, varies. I, I don't want to make it contentious, I mean, I but think- when I, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, though, they have way better data than external experts have. So hmm. um, in a way, like they're they're much better positioned to answer some of these questions, because if you're trying to do like external audits of these things, you lack certain information where you can kind of back certain things out, but you don't always know sort of what's going on under the hood. And so even though people who work for tech companies are more constrained in terms of probably what they can do and what they can publish of what they do and what they can make public. Um, they have the best data to answer these questions. So I think they're still like, in a, they're still really important actors. And one of the things that people call for is just more external data availability and ways for platforms to cooperate with external experts to figure out um, kind of like appropriate ways to um to monitors and address some of these issues, given the constraints that the companies have too. Yeah, I could see that. I think um, it'll be it'll be interesting to see, like as these technologies that we're all using in different ways advance. Like, uh, who steps up to the plate? And you know, I mean. You know, like cars didn't have seatbelts in the 70s, but we didn't just keep rolling out cars without seatbelts, right? Like, could could you imagine if your car didn't have like six or eight, some cars have 12 airbags now, but in the 80s and 90s, there were no airbags in cars? Yeah, and and there's a lot of, there's a lot of efforts right now to regulate um, tech companies, but it's a, it's just complicated because often the people tasked with regulating don't have really the expertise to do it either. So it's kind of a brave new world in terms of figuring out how different actors can come together to make progress on this, especially given all of their different incentives. Yeah, it's super interesting. I'm sure that we could fill multiple hours just on like regulation and free speech and all of that. Uh, Before we wrap up and when I end up posting this, uh, I'm going to link to your website. Uh, uh, you have this like really cool uh, discussion on social media war in the Middle East on Brookings that I think people with, the, uh, with Brookings that I think people would find interesting. 
Uh, but like, where are the best places to find you? Where should people go if they want to hear more about what's on your mind? Um, I mean, honestly, I type my website is probably the best place because I try to link to new things I'm doing there. Um, also, people are welcome to follow me on Twitter, although I'm mostly just retweeting academic papers, so it might not be that exciting for um, for your audience. Yeah, where where are the original tweets? I know <laughs> I gotta I gotta do more of that. <laughs> do you need like a social media person to like? run your twitter i don't know <laughs> i don't think i don't think i'm big enough for that yet but maybe someday okay uh okay that's great so your website i'll put a link to that and then is there like anything else just in the vein of the conversation that uh you want to kind of bring to the surface of the conversation or anything else that's like super important and top of mind for you at the moment um, you know, I feel like I feel like we've covered a lot of a lot of the kind of big picture issues in this space in our conversation right now. I think uh, one space to watch for this is there's just a lot of really exciting work being done on tracking what's going on online surrounding the 2020 midterms and kind of beyond focused domestically in the U.S. Um, and especially just trying to identify sort of computational propaganda and, and other and other types of activities that may kind of be influencing politics over the next few months. Um, so I can send you a couple of a couple of links to places to watch for that work as well, which is just um, I think a, a place where practitioners are really using these types of tools at the moment. Yeah, that would be really cool and i'll include that when i post this so alex i really appreciate your time today and it was very cool to study with you last semester and uh, this conversation's been super interesting well thanks so much chris i really appreciate it and i hope you continue to enjoy chicago but come back and visit us in boulder at some point oh i definitely will i appreciate it